Amen. Thank you, Kevin. And if you have your Bibles with you today, find Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, as we look at the Christian and his struggle or her struggle. Next Sunday, uh, we will be at Bristol Road. We have a faith and family day with a dinner there. And so uh, Ted Culver, my friend and our, one of our leaders here, will be filling in for me. So be praying for him. I know you'll have a great Sunday here. Romans chapter 7. And I want to begin by just reading one verse. Romans 7.15. Paul writes, for the Apostle Paul, this is pretty amazing. He says, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want. I do the things I hate. He also writes in Romans seven eighteen, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is my flesh, that is the, the superficial part of him. He says, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I end up doing. Isn't the Bible real? This is the Christian's struggle. Is our intention is good, but many times we fall short. And the things we don't want to do, we don't want to lose our temper, we don't want to lust in our heart, we don't want to be more uh, greedy. Things we don't intend to do, we find ourselves doing. The Bible describes Christianity as very real and realistic. Now this passage, in fact the chapter, Romans 7, uh, meant a lot to me uh, when I first began to pastor. I, I pastored in a church in uh, Weatherford, Texas called uh, Harmony Baptist Church. Still there and, and doing good. And it was, a sweet, it was a sweet time. We were there 10 years before we came here. And I had not been raised in a Bible teaching church. I had been raised in a Bible preaching church. But they didn't do a lot of what I would call solid teaching. So I never heard of Romans 7. So when I read Romans 7, I thought, that definitely sounds like me. And I'm a pastor. I'd been a pastor for two or three years. And I picked up some commentaries, and one of the commentaries that I picked up said that this is a lost man. Christians don't struggle like this. And I read that and I thought, I'm a lost man. I've never been saved. I had been saved and baptized when I was seven years old. 
But I found myself struggling and flailing and often failing. And so I decided, well, I'm going to get saved. Now, I'm a pastor for three years. And so I decided, and I knelt down, received Christ, went through the prayer, and, and, uh, and I called a local Baptist pastor, First Baptist Church, Weatherford, Texas, to come to my church on a Wednesday night during the service and baptize me. Now, you can imagine, here, here's people coming to church to hear the, the Word taught, and, they, and what they see is their pastors getting saved and baptized. <laughs> that was weird. <laughs> but people were sweet. One little lady said to me after the service, she said, you know, I think we ought to have a saved pastor. <laughs> And I said, well, I think you should do. But now here's the thing. A few days later, the old struggles were right back. I was still fighting the flesh, sometimes failing. In fact, sometimes worse. I, I, I think I had my worst failures after I got saved and baptized twice. <laughs> So since then, I have revisited Romans 7, and over the years, I have made this decision. Romans 7 is not a lost man. Romans 7 is a Christian. It's not only a Christian, it's the Apostle Paul. As he struggled with what he calls the flesh, which is not exactly the body, two different words for that, but but it's the inclinations that remain. It's not the new nature. I don't even call it the old nature. I call it the flesh. That's what the Bible calls it. But let me just quickly give to you three reasons why I take this to be a saved man. In fact, the Apostle Paul himself. One, in the English and in the Greek text especially, in which the New Testament's originally written. Verses 1 to 13 is a past tense. It's called the aorist tense, past. It's almost autobiographical. This is what happened to me in the past. But verses 14 to 25 is the, called the present tense or continual tense. It's, what, it's ongoing. It's what's called the, the, uh, it, the present Technically, it's called the present tense, the ongoing tense. It's happening now. Paul intentionally switches to the present tense when he describes in, in Romans 7, verses 14 to 25, when he describes his struggle with the flesh. That's one reason I take it to be a Christian. Another reason I take this passage to be a Christian is because of the language that he uses. For example, in Romans 7, verse 21 to 23, he, sa he says, verse 21, I find it to be a law that 
When I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in the inner man. Wait, wait a minute. That's a lost man? Who ever heard of a lost person, which Paul describes in Ephesians 2, 1, as being dead in trespasses and sin, dead to God. They have no desire whatsoever for God. And this man delights in the law of God? See, it's hard to have that kind of language to describe a person who's just a natural, in his natural state, apart from grace. Someone who delights in the law of God. And then a third reason I take this to be a Christian is he actually expresses his faith in Christ in verse 24 and 25. He says, Wretched man that I am, notice not that I was or will be, wretched man I am, verse 24, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then verse 25, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He actually expresses worship and thanksgiving for the solution that he has found in Jesus Christ. Now that cannot be a, a lost man who's never made a profession of faith in Christ. Therefore, I take Romans 7 to not only be uh, a Christian, but the Apostle Paul, in some of his experiences in life, he goes through a city and there's, just, there's, there's these uh, fightings within and spiritual conflicts and demonic pressures and fleshly temptations. This is part of it of being a Christian. In fact, I'll tell you this, I think the closer you get to God, the more intense it will become. Look at Isaiah chapter 6 where he, he went to the temple to worship and as he's drawing close to God in worship and he suddenly the, the veil opens and he has this vision of God and what does he, what's his response? He says, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. I don't talk right. And I am undone. See, the closer you get to the flame, the greater you'll feel the heat. So for those reasons, uh, and from my own experience and observations, I have viewed this and I don't believe that a Christian will ever get beyond having to fight the fight of faith and struggle in prayer and discipline himself to read the word to fellowship with Christians there will always be a certain intentionality that belongs to the victorious Christian. Now, what I want to do here, I want to give you some reasoning on why God lets us go through this period of struggle. Why, 
Why does he permit struggle? Why doesn't he just zap us so there's, there's just constant victory? And I think at one point in, in the future, in the resurrection and in heaven, there, that will happen where there is no, we don't, there's nothing to resist. Temptation is gone. Sin is gone. But for now, why does God let us struggle? Sometimes even falter. And I offer three or four reasons. One, God lets us struggle because we grow in our understanding of the gospel. If I ask you what your biggest problem is, you might name a number of things. Finances, employment, marriage, health. But I want to tell you what your biggest problem is. It is sin. And in the gospel is the solution to your biggest problem. In 1500, the church had become this large conglomerate of liturgy and incense and rituals, titles. And then Martin Luther became this revivalist, this reformer. And he showed up in a Catholic seminary as a monk or priest and began to teach Romans. And in the book of Romans, he said, A man is justified by faith, not works. We're not saved by rituals and pilgrimages and works and efforts and liturgy and incense, but we're saved by simple faith in Jesus Christ. And it came out of this incredible struggle that he had for years in the monasteries where he, would, his, he had this sensitive conscience, an introspective personality, and he would confess every little tiny sin he could think of so, that, so much so that the, the priest that he would confess to finally said, Luther, I am not hearing anymore. I, you got nothing going on. Don't even come in here. They, he wouldn't even hear his confession. One man, a psychologist from Harvard named Eric Erickson, um, you may have heard the phrase identity crisis. He came, uh, Erickson came up with that. A professor at Harvard wrote a paper on Martin Luther's personality. And his conclusion was Martin Luther was psychotic. <laughs> he said, this guy was off his rocker. But if you, if you go back and you look at the movement of the churches from the time of Luther forward, every single church you can think of emerged from what we call the Protestant Reformation. The first out, out of the gate were the Baptists under Zwingli. Then there came the Presbyterians and then there came the Episcopalians and the Anglicans. Every church you can think of, the Methodists 
came. Then the Pentecostals. Then the non-denominational. And of course, the Lutherans. Every church you can think of emerged out of this man's struggle with his own conscience and his sin. Even the great hymns of the faith, Amazing Grace and All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name, these are all that come out of the Reformation. The charities, the hospitals, the orphanages, the missions. The great missionary movement in 1700 came from the Protestants following Luther over in England and decided that people are lost and need to be saved. And it all came out of that. And they went to India as missionaries. When I read that, I thought, if, that, if a psychotic can produce all those churches and all those hymns and all these missions and all these charities, we need some more psychotics. We need at least a measure of neurosis. <laughs> Amen? Hey, you got a pastor that's been baptized twice, so we're already ahead of the game. <laughs> but one of the things a struggle does is it makes you clarify in your mind just how is God pleased with me? And you grapple with the gospel. We... we we are justified by faith, not works. If it's works, then we are lost. Romans seven thirteen, Paul said, Did that which is good, the law, bring death to me? Romans seven thirteen, by no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. In other words, the uh, sin is so bad that it even used the good law to produce sin that it might be shown to be sin and through the commandment sin would become sinful beyond measure. See, we don't know how bad sin is. We don't know how deep it is. We don't know how mysterious it is. It's not a big enough problem in our understanding and our struggles will help us with that. So God is teaching us. You need to know what your problem is. Here's a second reason that, we, that God lets us struggle. And that is we develop a compassion for others. Now the Pharisees had developed a religion which was outward only. Jesus said to them, he said, you're like a, a grave full of dead men's bones. Outwardly you look fine, but inwardly you're corrupt. The prophet Isaiah saw this coming in Isaiah 65 two. It says, they walk in a way that was not good after their own thoughts. And they say, stand over there by yourself. Do not come near me, for I am holier than thou. <laughs> Have you ever heard that phrase, holier than thou? You know where that comes from? 
the, when the Pharisees begin to form. Uh, you stay over there. I'm holier and you might defile me by your presence. Is this the way Jesus did? No, he came to where we were. He went into people's homes and ate with them. In Hebrews 5, 2 and 3, look at this verse. Talking about the priesthood and those who deal with sinners. He said, he, the priest can deal gently with ignorant people and wayward people since he himself is beset with weakness. And because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins as he does for those of the people. Talk about the priesthood. This is what the priesthood was to be. So he lets them struggle. Why? So they can have compassion on people they are sent to minister to. And we need to love these people. They, they struggle. They don't know what their problems are. And we can help them. But if we say, uh, you know, stand over there by yourself for I am holy and I don't want to have anything to do with you. We'll never do it that way. So God is teaching us sympathy and compassion for the failure. And I just want to say, there's not anyone among us that's not a moral failure. In one degree or another, we've blown it. And I want to tell you, Jesus Christ welcomes you. Praise God. That's how I got in. That's how Andy got in. I know how Andy got in. And that's how he got in. That's how we all get in. Here's a third reason God lets us struggle. It makes us aware of our need for others. It, pro it produces a dependence, an interdependence. An interdependence. Not a dependence, we're not to be clingy, but an interdependence where we help each other. 29 times in verses 14 to 25, you will find the word I. Now, over in Romans 8, he's going to get to us or we. But there is an independence to the man who's struggling. And Paul recognized the need for the church. We need small groups. We need churches. We need participation. We need God's people to advise and counsel. We need teachers. We need servants. We need greeters. We need preachers. You know, in John chapter 11, it says that God raised, Jesus raised a man named Lazarus from the dead. Remember that story? And, and he came out of the tomb, and it says in John eleven forty four, the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen, and his face was wrapped with cloth, and Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Jesus said to them, 
And get the picture here. Because Jesus just raised him from the dead. But he tells them to help him get rid of the grave clothes. If Jesus can raise a man out of the grave, can't he get rid of the grave clothes? Yes, he can. He wants the participation of others. So, Lazarus, for this part, I'm going to hand you off to your family. Amen. God will so design your Christian life so you need us, the church. Just as he's designed mine, I need you. Many times I go to church and I'm kind of discouraged. Man, when it's over, I'm fired up. I'm ready. It makes us aware of our need for others. And then finally, the fourth thing is, he elevates our appreciation for Christ. Look at verse 24 and 5 again. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. His struggle has made him appreciate what God has done in the person of Christ. That's the purpose of a struggle. He wants to elevate our value we place on His Son. David wrote in Psalm 130, Lord, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand? If you counted them up, we know that about David. But he said, there's forgiveness that you may be revered. So I wait, my soul does wait, in his word do I hope. And then he tells us this, Psalm 130, verse 7 and 8. He turns to us and he says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there's mercy. With him is abundant redemption. And notice, and he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Praise God. Everyone, before it's all over, he's going to get us out of all of it. The penalties of it, the power of it, even the presence of it. He's going to redeem us from all of it. There's a, there was a pastor in, when I was in Texas, I heard about him. His name was uh, J. Harold Smith. And he lived about, he, he's been dead now for about 50 years. But he pastored the First Baptist Church of um, Spring... Field or Hot Springs, Arkansas. Um, no, Fort Smith, Arkansas. Fort Smith, Arkansas. And he was there for years and years. And he had quite a few controversies. He would get involved in politics sometimes. And so he'd had, he had all these uh, controversies in the church. Finally, he he retired and was going to preach his last sermon. His last sermon was on a Sunday night. But on that Sunday morning, he stood up and he said, 
Tonight's my last message. And tonight, I'm going to name the man who's given me more trouble than any man in this city. And man, a murmur went through the congregation. They thought, oh my goodness, who's, who, who do you think it's going to be? And the church was packed out that night. Final sermon. He's going to name the man that's given him more trouble than anybody. And he took for his text Romans chapter 7. I do not understand my own actions. I don't do what I want. I do the thing I hate. He said, the man that's given me the most trouble in my whole ministry is me. I'm my own worst enemy. And he said, I'm not going to blame God. I'm not even going to blame Satan. I'm not going to blame others. I am the problem. And I'll take God's disciplines in order to get free of my bondage. And that's humility will win the day as we learn what God does for us. He lets us struggle, but he's got good reasons for it. And there will come a day when the victory is sure. We're going to cross over now into Romans chapter 8. He goes from I to us. He goes from flesh to spirit. And Paul will tell us how to walk in the spirit so that the wretched man is delivered. Amen. I look forward to bringing those messages and I'm praying God will let me do it. All right. Ushers, you prepare to come and let's pray together. Kevin, you come and sing for us and let's, let's worship with tithes and offerings unto God. Heavenly Father, thank you today that we belong to you and that your mercies are greater than our sins. We thank you today uh, for this apostle and for his example that you gave us and for his, the hope that he set before us. We ask your blessing now upon our future through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.